John chapter 14. Lord willing, between today and next Sunday, we'll finish up this chapter and then we'll continue on. But we're still considering this subject of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin reading John chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We return this morning to find the eleven disciples still in the upper room with Jesus. Jesus has told them that He's leaving, they're troubled, and He's encouraging them with promises. And last week we specifically began to discuss the promise of the Holy Spirit. We established quite a bit, I think, about the nature of the Holy Spirit, of what He has come to do and who He is. Jesus called Him a helper, a paraclete, one who is called alongside us to help us, to strengthen us, to advocate for us. He called Him another helper. That is, He is like Jesus in His ministry. In fact, He is one with Jesus Christ and with the Father. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus called Him the Spirit of Truth because He bears witness to the truth, giving us an understanding of the truth, giving us the ability to grasp the truth and even the faith to believe the truth about God and about Christ. And picking up where we left off last week, Jesus is clear that this is a comfort to His troubled disciples. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The word orphans is used to describe children who are left without a father. And Jesus uses it to describe disciples who are left without their master. Orphans in Jesus' day were one of the most needy and pitiable groups in all of society. There was no George Mueller opening orphanages. There were no government programs. There was no real help for orphans. They were helpless and in most cases, hopeless. 
Jesus is about to die. And if Jesus dies and that's it, then what are these guys supposed to do? What is the last three years of their life meant? What do they live for? If he's dead, to be quite honest, why are we here? The Apostle Paul himself said that if everything ended with when Jesus died on the cross and the church has gone through its struggles and troubles and persecutions and fights against sin and Jesus is still dead, then we are of all men most pitiable. What's the point? But Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And then in verse 19, he says, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Now, Bible scholars debate, imagine that, debate, of course, what this means exactly, whether Jesus is talking about coming to his disciples and them seeing him after his resurrection, or if he's talking about coming to them when he sends the Holy Spirit. Quite honestly, I don't think we really need to debate that because both happened and both are true, right? Jesus did rise from the dead and came to His disciples. They did see Him and He comes to every believer who puts their trust in Him by the Holy Spirit. The important thing in the passage is what Jesus wants His disciples to know. He wants them and us to know that He will not leave us as orphans, but that He will be with us. And in the context of the chapter, He's still talking about this as it relates to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So as we move on through the passage, let's consider more of these promises that Jesus makes as they are connected to the promise of the Holy Spirit. I have three for you this morning. Number one, the Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. Verse 19, again, a little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now, whichever view you take of that debate, it's impossible to deny the connection between the work of the Holy Spirit and resurrection. The Apostle Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was actively involved in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise of resurrection. Jesus Christ physically died. His body was laid in a tomb, and on the third day, the Holy Spirit, by His power, raised the physical body of Jesus from the dead. And that same Holy Spirit lives within you if you have put your trust in Him and believed in the gospel of Jesus. 
In the same way that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, so will He raise your body when Jesus comes again. Your body will be glorified. It will be made perfect. It will be fitted for an eternity in heaven with God. Because I live, Jesus says, you will live also. But that's not the only way in which the Holy Spirit gives life, is it? I know it seems like it's been so long ago, but do you remember when we studied John chapter 3? Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Paul told the Ephesians how they had once been spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, but now by the power of the gospel working in them by the Holy Spirit, they have been quickened, made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's the promise to all who believe the gospel. And receive the Holy Spirit. When you realize that you are in your sins, that you are lost and hopeless, that your eternity will be one of judgment. When you realize that and come to God for mercy, trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, trusting in His payment for your sins when He died on the cross, He forgives you. He removes your guilt. He gives you everlasting life. And He gives you the Holy Spirit who raises you from death to spiritual life. He births you into the family of God. And then when the time of this world comes to an end, He'll raise your body physically from the dead and glorify it. And you will dwell with God in heaven forever. That's how the Holy Spirit gives life. Number two, the Holy Spirit establishes fellowship. He establishes fellowship. Verse 20 says, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That verse alone deserves about three sermons. Again, where he says, at that day, that makes opportunity for debate. Is it the day of His resurrection or the day that the Spirit comes? Personally, you're more than welcome to disagree. I think that day doesn't refer to a specific date like May the 2nd, but the day, if you will, of the church, the church age in which we live. The church age was inaugurated by two main events. What's that? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus is alive. We have the Holy Spirit at that day, at this day. The Holy Spirit has come, and what's important is so much the meaning of what the word day means as it is what Jesus wants His disciples and us to know. He says, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Put that puzzle together. Think about it for a second. Listen carefully to what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about our union with God. Jesus says, I am in the Father. Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is in 
the Father. That is, the Son is united in perfect, eternal fellowship with the Father. Got that? Jesus is in the Father. Now, Jesus says, I am in the Father and you in me. So Jesus is in the Father and we are in Jesus. Where does that put us? In Jesus and the Father. That is to say that followers of Jesus are united to Christ at the moment of conversion. We call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, we have this symbol back here in this pool, right? When someone becomes a Christian, we take them into the water and we do what? We immerse them. We dunk them all the way. We're Baptists for a reason. A little sprinkle on the head won't do. <laughs> we take them all the way under. We take that new believer, we put them all the way under the water, and like that symbol of water baptism shows, when you became a Christian, you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. That is, you were immersed into God. You were united with Christ. If I can make this sound like a good commercial, let me say, but that's not all. Because Jesus says, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, indwells believers. Call me crazy, but when I think about this, I think about that dumb fish in Joel's room. His name is Cheese, because he's orange. The fish is in the water. It surrounds him. It encompasses him. It's everywhere. Everywhere he goes, he is in the water. But the water isn't just around him. The water is in him. He breathes it. He needs it to survive. He lives in it. He is in the water and the water is in him. He is united with the water. And Jesus says... I am in my Father. You are in me. And I am in you. The fellowship that the Godhead has enjoyed for all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit delighting in one another. God delighting in Himself. That same fellowship is now present in the life of the disciple of Christ who is in God and has God in Him. And that doesn't mean that we're, we are God or become some part of God, but we are now in perfect fellowship with God. The relationship that Jesus has with the Father, you have with the Father. The relationship that the Father has with the Son, you have with the Son, and the Spirit, and all around. The Holy Spirit establishes fellowship in the believer. Let me briefly mention some aspects of this fellowship. Uh, three, I think, this union with God. Number one, there is love. Verse 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. In this fellowship that we have with God by the Holy Spirit, there's love all around, right? We love Christ because He died for us. 
The Father loves us because we love Christ whom He loves. And being loved by us and the Father, Christ also loves us. Loves us. There's love everywhere in this relationship. Another aspect, number two, is revelation. Jesus says, I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. The word means to disclose or reveal. That doesn't mean that we have some kind of vision or dream or a visible and audible encounter with Christ. But when we receive the Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, it is then that we intimately and personally know Christ. The Spirit within us, through the revelation of God's written Word, gives us eyes to see the Lord Jesus for who He is. Not who we think He is, or who we think He ought to be, but when the Spirit is within us, we have that fellowship, we see Jesus and know Jesus for who He is. The third aspect of the fellowship, there's love, there's revelation, and there's dwelling. Dwelling. We're told that Judas... Not Iscariot. That's an important distinction, especially if you're the other Judas. Judas had a question about this, and it's a good question. Verse 22, he said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? See, this is new for them. They don't fully understand how it all works yet. They're still in that frame of mind that when... Jesus reveals Himself, manifests Himself. They think it's going to be as the Messiah to the world. That He's literally going to just show Himself as the Messiah and throw the government to the side and establish His kingdom. It's literally the night before His death. And they're still waiting for Him to publicly announce that He is the Christ, that He is the Messiah, that Rome is no longer in charge, but He is the King. That's what they're waiting for. So Judas says, what's changed in your plan, Jesus? That you're going to reveal yourself to us, but not to the world. How does that work? So Jesus answers, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How does Jesus manifest himself? To the believer, by making his home with him, his abode with him. Yes, we believe that Jesus is king. Yes, we believe that one day he will come to establish his kingdom, overthrow evil governments and nations, and make all things right. But he came to do something else first. He came first to deal with sin and to bring people into fellowship with him so he could make his home with them. One thing I learned about this verse this week is that that word translated home or abode in verse 23 is the same word translated mansions or dwelling places in verse 2. The word is mane in Greek. Verse 2 says, in my father's house are many mane, mansions, dwelling places. Verse 23, Jesus says, we will come to him and make our mane with Him, our home, our dwelling place with Him. So it's like this. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. The Holy Spirit says, I'm coming to your house to prepare a place for the Father. Someday we will move into our dwelling place with God. 
Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day. But at the moment you were saved, God moved into a dwelling place in you. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit and His work in us that makes us an acceptable home for God Himself. The Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit establishes fellowship. Number three, the Holy Spirit produces love and obedience. You see, we're not really an acceptable place for God to live on our own, right? I sin, you sin, God doesn't do sin. But the work of the Holy Spirit within us is to be progressively, continuously making us holy, conforming us into the image of Christ. When you received the Holy Spirit, that is, when you were born again, you were instantly given a perfect standing before God. Did you know that? You were given a perfect standing in the eyes of God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When you became a Christian, your record was wiped clean. Not a spot on it. As far as God is concerned, you are as perfect and as sinless as Jesus Himself when He looks at you. You are clothed in His righteousness. You still sin, but you are no longer defined by your sin. Your identity is not found in your sins or in your struggles with it. Your identity is now found only in the righteousness of Jesus. Sinners will not inherit God's kingdom. And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Positionally, you are holy and righteous in the sight of God. That's positionally. We're all very aware that practically we have work to do. <laughs> we have a perfect standing before God, but we still sin and are in need of purification, sanctification in this life, right? In the Corinthians case, they had issues with sexual sin. So just a few lines after telling them how washed and sanctified they are, Paul writes... Flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In one sense, the Holy Spirit has already sanctified us. We are holy in God's eyes. We are positionally sanctified. But in the practical outworking of that in our lives, well, we're still works in progress. If you're a true Christian, your body is a temple for God, and we ought always to be working to make, an accept, make it an acceptable place for God to dwell. Your body is a temple. I used to hear people say that a lot when they were criticizing someone for smoking. And that was about the only time you ever heard it. They skipped the buffet part, just smoking. Quit that. Sometimes you'll hear fitness people say that when they think you need to work out and diet. Your body's a temple. And it is. I'll give credit to that line of thinking. We should take care of our bodies. Don't trash your body. You are God's temple. But remember what Paul told Timothy. Bodily exercise profits a little. It does. But godliness is profitable for all things having promise of this life that now is and of that which is to come. Your body is God's temple and we are to rid it of that which is most offensive to God, namely, sin. This is obviously important to Jesus. Look how many times it shows up here just in these few verses. Verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. That's a lot of times in just a few verses. It must be important. Hear me well. Those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit... Those who have been born again, who are truly Christians, are characterized by love and obedience. If you love Jesus, if you really love Jesus, you will obey Him. If you are not obeying Him, you do not love Him. And if you do not love Him, you are not a Christian. The proof as to whether you're a Christian is not in your church membership. It isn't in your baptism. It isn't in taking the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, you will do those things, sure. But the strongest evidence for your conversion is not what you do in here, in this room. But it's what your life looks like the other six and a half days out there. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? Not asking if you think He's nice. Yeah, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'd be in real trouble without Him. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking if you love Him. Do you have a deep, heartfelt, life-centering affection for Him? If you do, 
your life will be characterized by obedience to Him. You will be taking steps to kill sin in your life. You will desire His Word. You will not forsake the gathering of believers. You will be concerned for those who do not know the Lord. If you love Him, if you really are a Christian, you will obey Him. Will you do it perfectly? No. Will you still sin? Yes. When you do sin, will you repent and continue on in your walk with the Lord? Absolutely. How do I know? Because true Christians have the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Holy Spirit without Him gradually making you holy. Holy God dwells in us and He is making us a holy temple. Let's wrap up here looking at verse 24. See, Jesus demonstrated perfect love and obedience. He says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus loves the Father. And everything that He said and did in His earthly ministry was in perfect obedience to the plan of the Father. Jesus obeyed like we never could. And it was His obedience that saved us, right? Jesus lived the sinless life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve because He loves us and desires to make us holy so He can dwell with us. He knew we could never do it on our own. Now, if you recognize your sinful condition before God, if you repent and trust Jesus alone to save you, He removes your guilt, He gives you a perfect standing before God, He gives you the Holy Spirit, and He will, for the rest of your life, do the work of conforming you to the image of Christ. Sometimes the progress seems slow. I feel that. You know, if you plant a tree, you sit... Well, I'll just use my tomato plants because they're kind of sad looking right now. Some of them are doing okay. But if I sit out there in a chair and watch my tomato plants, <laughs> I'm going to be so discouraged because I can't see them grow. But if I go out and water them one morning and not look at them for the rest of the day, it's a nice sunny day, a little dew comes at night, and I go back out the next morning, I will probably notice at least a little difference, right? And that's encouraging. And it's the same way with your Christian walk. If you sit and you just you look at yourself in the mirror all the time and you think, man, I'm not making any progress. I don't feel like I'm being made any more holy. I'm not made any more like Jesus. I'm not being sanctified. I must not be a Christian. Pump the brakes. I'll say this, if you're not being sanctified, you're probably not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, your sanctification isn't going to happen overnight. It's a lifetime work of the Holy Spirit. And over time, we'll be able to see those little changes. Those new leaves coming on. 
an extra inch here and there. And eventually you start seeing that fruit to grow. And we have confidence that this work will be finished one day. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. John wrote in his first letter, 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. We have confidence that the work that God began in us when He gave us His Holy Spirit, He will bring it to completion. Man, I look forward to that day. Until then, I live with these promises. The promise of the Holy Spirit. He gives life. And if you're dead in your sins, He offers life to you today. He establishes fellowship. He brings us into union with Himself. He's in us and we are in Him. And He is producing in me a love for and an obedience to Christ who saved me. That's a promise. Amen. Stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and for these promises that we have through it. Thank You for the reality of these promises that You have sent us Your Spirit. You have given us that down payment, that guarantee of what will one day be. Oh Lord, how we look forward to that day. But may we here and now rest in the promises of Your Word. May we live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, killing our sin, and walking in the truth. Make us holy as You are holy. May we be bright and shining lights in this dark world. And may anyone here who has not yet been brought to life in Jesus Christ be brought to that life today. Open their eyes that they may see, and their hearts that they may receive your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.